And now, business games. Welcome to the second ever interview episode of Business Games Podcast, where we apply game theory to business to help you make better decisions under uncertainty. This is episode three of season two, the experimental one. This season, we explore all things experimental in business. Normally, I introduce every episode this season with this. Over the past few years, there had been an increased volume of business articles about experimentation. Across roughly half a dozen episodes, we look at business experiments and their benefits for decision-making from different angles. Corporate versus SME, startup versus established, business versus academia, and so on. Every episode follows a similar pattern of four sections. The first two are an intro followed by a deeper dive. Years ago, I was trained to be a professor, so section three is filled with homework, which comes in two flavors. One, books to read, things to listen, and so on. Two, practices to embed in daily lives of decision makers. The knowledge on its own is not enough. You need to build muscle memory for practicing these things. The fourth section is then any plug by the guest of things that relate to the topic discussed that could be of benefit to the audience. But this episode is not quite normal. It's slightly different. I'm recording this intro as one of the last things I do for the season. So I have the benefit of hindsight of the content covered in all the other episodes. And the reason for this is simple. As this was the first in-person interview that I ever did, I fiddled around with the settings and managed to not record the first two tries. So by the time we actually got to the functioning recording, I had to save my guest from hearing the same spiel a third time. Anyway. Now, I know Professor Anish Chowdhury from my years at the University of Auckland. I was getting interested in behavioral economics, and Anish was Auckland's first hire in the field. Since then, I had not pursued the topic further. Anish, on the other hand, became one of the top published authors in experimental economics in the world, with multiple A-journal articles and several books, served as head of the economics department at the University of Auckland, and wrote a lot of commentary in the New Zealand media on the New Zealand public policy, amongst other things. Okay, so back to experiments in business. One cannot discuss the topic without mentioning the works of Kahneman and Tversky, and one cannot discuss their work without a wider discussion of the various breakthroughs in the field that they created, namely experimental and behavioral economics. And I just happen to know one of the top academic experimental economists. Ananish kindly gave us a lot of his time, which was awesome. Because of the technical mishap, we ended up recording twice and I am deciding to release this in two episodes. The first recorded part was already a standalone episode to which I only ever wanted to add maybe 10 more minutes. But by the time we sat down to record those 10 extra minutes, we ended up talking for almost another hour, which now becomes a bonus episode for premium members. If you like the first one, you'll love the bonus one. Some topics get repeated from slightly different angles to help understand them better, and also, there's way more new and interesting stuff in there. So the episodes are recommended as a tandem. I'll do one deeper dive episode on the premium feed as usual. Another point. This interview episode is second on purpose. It reflects how I think. The first episode would just observe the messiness and the nitty-gritty of the real-world business. We followed the top consultant who rolls up his sleeves and does the work in their business. But in J.P. Castlin, we also got somebody who is well-versed in practical academic research. J.P. even defines the combination of practice and theory as praxis. 
shouts to the, his newsletter strategy in praxis, which I think you should check out on Substack. After the exposure to the messiness of the real world, I personally find it helpful to get to the structure of formal inquiry into the underlying forces, before again using this knowledge back in the real-world application. And what better way to learn structured knowledge than from one of the top experimental economists in the world? Now, of course, being an economist myself, I am biased. But as you'll hear shortly, there's a lot to be learned from economics on this topic. Without further ado, let's listen and learn. All right, uh, third time lucky. Ananish, please <laughs> introduce the uh, field of behavioral economics for the listeners. Okay, so traditionally, behavioral economists came from a background in psychology. So these are people like Daniel Kahneman or Amos Tversky. And they primarily assumed that human beings were boundedly rational. So this is the Herbert Simon type story that we fall subject to cognitive errors, biases, we make systematic errors in judgment, and things like that. So they tried to understand how that influenced economic decision making. And a lot of it was decision making under uncertainty. And a lot of it was individual decision making, right? The economists, on the other hand, came from this from a perspective of economic theory, and they wanted to see, well, does the theory work? If it does, fine. If it doesn't, why doesn't it work? Things along those lines. And this approach took off really in the 70s and 80s, primarily because game theory became an integral part of economics at that point, right? And what is game theory? Game theory is really where you have kind of interactive decision making, right? So it's not individual. What I decide will impact how much money you make, what you decide impacts how much money I make. So we call this strategic decision making, where its idea is that you have to anticipate what others might do, how others might respond. So it's a bit different from what business people understand the strategy. But it's sort of, you know, kind of the idea is that anticipating others' responses. So you have to kind of think through what your opponents might do in response to some business strategy that you have adopted, right? Yeah. And the issue here is that because a lot of this happens under kind of asymmetric information where one side knows more about the market than the other side, or it's a question of um, you know, what kind of beliefs do you have about the market and the beliefs may be very different among participants. Mm -hmm. So it was very difficult to validate some of these ideas using naturally occurring data. So people turned to the lab to kind of simulate decision-making scenarios and look at how people make those decisions, right? And then over time, of course, there was more of an overlap between these two approaches because there are common themes to it. So that now, I think it's probably good to say that um, behavioral economics kind of a is an overarching philosophy which looks at decision-making with insights from economics and, and psychology or even you know, agent-based modeling or computer simulations. But experiment, experiments are an integral part of that kind of framework. Mm -hmm. So diving into the lab versus uh, field and control trials, the stuff in the lab is obviously um, the setting is artificial. 
So we're trying to replicate real world as much as possible and there are monetary incentives, but there have been a number of criticisms that, for example, the monetary incentives are sometimes trivial and so, you know, people don't. Um, but you said also that uh, there had been more and more field uh, experiments being, being carried out. Could you uh, describe, first of all, the lab experimentation and the uh, maybe arguments for and against? Um, and then what kind of experiments can be done in the field? Okay, so, so that's actually a fairly broad question and, and you're right, this is a, a controversial topic or at least a much debated topic. So I was just talking about, so I have this new book coming out called Behavioral Economics and Experiments and I talk extensively about some of these things. So, so this, some of the criticisms of lab versus field experiments are based on a misunderstanding of the roles that these things are supposed to play, right? Okay, so if you back up for a minute, so what happened in psychology was that the psychologists, when they found an interesting phenomenon, they would go out and collect a lot of data, and then once they had established some kind of regularity, they would call this a theory or a model or an effect or something, right? The economists, on the other hand, what did they do? They kind of started with some axioms about human behavior, that humans behave in this way. And so think of this as a model of human behavior and then they went out to look for data to see if the model was held up or not, yeah. right? Okay. Now in some cases it's important to understand that yes lab experiments have some limitations but they can be quite useful because you can think of the lab experiment itself as a model mm -hmm. that you can actually try out various things and then look at other data or naturally occurring data so they can be models themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Second of all, what business people need to understand is that if you're rolling out a new product or a new strategy or a new payment incentive scheme, then implementing that in a field setup immediately yeah. is laborious, it's costly, and the costs of getting it wrong can be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. So then you typically don't want to roll these out just like that. You might want to try out a lab implementation first. So in economics, we call these wind tunnel tests. So what's a wind tunnel test? It's where you try out planes and things like that yeah. before you see if they can actually do the thing, right? So lab experiments can be extremely useful, especially, especially if it's a complex enough problem. So if you're designing in a broad spectrum airwave auctions, things like that, where field implementation, we're talking billions of dollars, yeah. you want to try it out in the lab first to see which ones are feasible candidates because some of them will be completely non-starters, right? Okay. Now, why do it in the field? Well, because sometimes you'd say, well, you know, the lab experiments with students may not be a good approximation of what happens in real life, so you take it to the field and it's good, it's useful. But field experiments have their own drawbacks. For instance, you don't have a lot of control in the field yep. experiments. There are often problems of, of comprehension in a field setup that students are actually better at in some senses. Right? Comprehension in terms of the rules of the experiment. Correct. So if you're doing this, you know, if you, if you are doing experiments with, say, farmers in India, mm -hmm. that's great. But you have to allow for the fact that they may not understand your instructions all that well, etc. So, so these are really different things. You know, as I say, they are horses for courses. So, what is that? What is it that you are trying to see? Do you want to see if 
stockbrokers generate asset bubbles, then maybe use stockbrokers. It's fine. But do you want to try out different approaches? For instance, suppose you, you're asking, if I made this change to the incentive scheme, what does it do to people's behavior, right? And you're going to build up three or four or five different treatments. Now, the magnitudes may be quite different with students and non-students, but very often all you want are, what are, what are what's called the so-called comparative statics, where's, which way does it move? Mm -hmm. and, you know, lab experiments are often very good, useful. Okay, I will um, throw at you a couple of questions, but they also do relate to the, the, the applications to business. And what I would like to get for the audience is that what do we know from experiments to apply in daily business because we've got a lot of uh, economics is about policy making, right? So that's okay, that's for the government and these are important things, but they're not necessarily for business. What have we learned from um, experimental economics slash behavioral economics at, you know, at large that could be applied to daily business? And I'm thinking about um, uh, three types of kind of sub-questions there. What types of questions can we answer? And you hinted at some of them, uh, but I would like to get a little bit more in detail. Um, what types of settings? And again, I sort of, you know, um, talked about those, but maybe you have some um, anecdotes about the real world applications. And how to improve decisions? How can business leaders use experiments to um, improve uh, their decisions? Okay, so, so again, that's probably, that's really a whole book there. Yes. And the questions are um, the following in some senses, right? So when you say day-to-day -day business, you have to make a distinction between what, what is your business? How big of a company are you? Are you a small company? Are you a big company? What kind of business are you in? For instance, depending on the business you are in, you don't necessarily have to run experiments, but you might be able to look at existing experiments, for instance, in the equivalence of auctions. If you are out there bidding for oil leases or even property leases and things like that, what do we know from the auction literature, right? Mm -hmm. So that might be quite useful for you. So start with the existing information as much as possible, and if the setting is stable and if that has relevance to your setting, then you could apply that because it already exists. Correct. So, the, so, so you would need to start with the question, yeah. right? For instance, what is the basic question? Well, I've got, no. uh, I've got a, couple of, uh, a couple of ideas, but uh, I, I will... Um, so, and, and, and yes, this, this um, auction you know, auctions, for example, and how to bid on auctions. So, so that's a really important one. The other thing, and I think you mentioned it as well, I was thinking in any restructuring project within a large organization, um, a setting of um, in incentives within, Correct. you know, within Correct. HR, that type of thing. And the third topic is anything to do with, and these are the, the, the ones typically written a lot about, is anything to do with online kind of behavior of, uh, you know, people on websites and uh, shopping carts and all of that. So again, there's a, there's a large literature here. And one thing I should point out here is that if I'm using the word experiments in this context, that does not necessarily have to mean interactive mm -hmm. games, mm -hmm. right? They could be interactive games. Yeah. Some of these could be individual decision-making situations. 
mm-hmm. right? So, and a lot of these are closely connected, right? So let me, let me give you an example, for instance. Um, a lot of economic theory, including within business organizations, is based on ideas of carrots and sticks, mm-hmm. right? So reward workers, punish workers, things along those lines. But there is a significant amount of work now suggesting that intrinsic incentives mm-hmm. can work quite well and possibly at times more than extrinsic incentives. Why? Because extrinsic incentives typically come with a cost. So suppose you are worried, you are, on a, you are a bar owner and you are worried that the bartenders are stealing some of your alcohol. Right? Mm-hmm. What's the typical answer? The typical answer would be that let's install closed circuit cameras. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe, but often the answer is that when you subtract the cost of those compliance mechanisms, you are not necessarily better off. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this is a judgment call. Can you trust people enough or can you not trust people enough? But what I'm saying is that there's an instinctive belief that you you need to have the carrots and sticks. That may not be right. Second, you talked about HR. Now, in terms of change management, let me give you one example. So... This goes to the issue of gender equity. Mm-hmm. Now, what a lot of uh, organizations do is they ask employees to provide a self-evaluation first, right? So you do a self-evaluation, then you meet with your manager. Mm-hmm. What typically happens is women almost always give themselves lower scores than men. Mm-hmm. It is also the case that men tend to be highly overconfident. So these women come in with lower scores, the men come in with higher scores. Now, many managers, they actually understand this and they adjust. But the problem is that you have this psychological concept called anchoring. Mm-hmm. So if you have, if women have given themselves an average score of 5 out of 10 mm-hmm. and men have given themselves 9 out of 10, you adjust, but the adjustment is not perfect. So you might bring men down from 9 to 8 and you take women out up from five to six, but you still end up with women who are ranked lower and therefore they are not getting the merit increases or the promotions Mm -hmm. and things along those lines. So this is a systematic finding in the business literature, right? Mm -hmm. So I can give you many other examples. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to run experiments. You can study the literature and then you can try out a few of these things. Well, this one, so they're really interesting. Let's start with the second one because I've got a question to the first one and to the second one. Start with the second one. What what uh, what do you do then in those settings? Like, how would you actually counteract that, knowing uh, what we know about about the actual human behavior, such that you, so if you you move away from the self evaluation, or what, what do you do? So it depends what you have. So if you are interested, I just wrote this article called uh, "How to Address Gender Gap in the Workplace." Yeah. Right. So I think the first step in all of these things is to understand that we are all subject to these kinds of biases. So we all think that, oh no, you know, I am so completely fair and rational. That's not true. Mm-hmm. We are all subject to this. That's the first step, that we will be subject to these biases. Okay. So once you acknowledge that, then you have to ask the question, then how do we design the rules of the game so that we are not subject to this? Now, in that case, if I was an HR manager, I would go back and look at the data and say, is it the case that we've systematically ranked men better than women? Mm-hmm. In that case, maybe you need to throw away with the self-evaluation and you need to start with an interview for everyone, right? So mm-hmm. everyone comes in, you interview them. Then, as I point out in the article, 
it's important that you ask everyone the same question in the same order. Because what happens typically is most people will say, oh, I know what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. But immediately what that means is the person that you like, and look, this is always true. If I like you, I will respond different than if I don't like you, etc. Right? Yeah. What happens is if you haven't asked the same question in the same order, the next post, you kind of move the goalpost by mm -hmm. saying, oh, this is more important or that is more important. right? But the first step is to make sure, so have these institutions that say that, look, we are going to be biased, and therefore, uh, let's build rules or institutions that kind of address that, because we may not be able to address those on our own. So one of the good examples I, I like is that, you know, like when we go to hotels, we often forget to turn the lights off when we leave the room. Yeah. So how did the hotels respond to that? They give you a card, and you have to put the card in when you walk into the room, the lights come on, and then if you leave the room, you take the card out. Yeah. Because the hotels know that you won't remember to turn the lights out. So they have built a device mm -hmm. that forces you to do that. Sorry, you had another question about the uh, first. Yeah, no, I, just just to this point. So basically acknowledging that we have biases is Correct. the first step to, to correcting them. And then trying to bring in uh, external objective Correct. ways of, Correct. you know, forcing our behavior. Sort of forcing, limiting our choice set in a way, right? From the limiting choice, limiting in some senses the exposed discretion that, oh, you know, this is more important than that. Yeah. So you have committed yourself. So it's like a commitment yeah. device that. So uh, oh, the, okay. the second question then uh, relates to the first story about the extrinsic uh, carrots and sticks versus in, intrinsic uh, motivators. Let's, in the setting that you described about the uh, bar manager, right, and versus the bar owner, like what would be the, the solution in there and how, how, what are we, what are we learning about the intrinsic things because I've, uh, I've recognized this topic. This topic had, had again been popularized, uh, I think, in the last several years. But I'm still unsure about okay, what to do. How do we actually tap into that, into those motivators? As a and again, as I said, from the point of view of a of a business manager who wants to maybe move, you know, we, we want the bar manager to behave properly aligned with our incentives, but we don't want to set carrots and sticks type of thing. There's no easy answer to this. A lot of this has to depend on judgment in some senses or, or you know, the institution. But here are the key issues, right? So the first issue is that when a manager says that, look, I trust you to do the right thing, that's a very different message from when a manager says, I don't trust you to do the right thing, so I'm going to have closed circuit cameras. It's important to understand that, that right there, you have sent a particular message. So, mm -hmm. so one of the examples I talk about is that regardless of what you do, you have created the environment. Mm -hmm. right? So the status quo is also a choice. Okay. Right? So you have decided what the status quo is. Now, the moment that you've sent these signals to your employees, whether you trust them or you don't trust them, that creates the environment. Yep. Okay. Next question is that what happens typically, let me give you an example. So uh, we now have this managed isolation and quarantine facility, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Now think of how many thousands of people who have come through this facility and who have not tried to break out. Thousands. Mm -hmm. 
But what made the news? A few people who broke out. Yes. Right? So is the cost really worth the benefit? Right? So what I'm saying is that we tend to focus too much on the few extraordinary cases while we ignore. So if you have a trust-based system, will um, some people abuse it? Yes. But if most don't abuse it, then maybe the cost is not worth it. Right. So I think um, uh, that's that's a good point. The um, so a couple of things to that from my experience, and I think this is where the the cameras and maybe you know the um, uh, isolation facilities the, they have some something similar. Um, managers are very risk averse. Because typically, if something goes well, it's sort of expected, right? And if something goes badly, well, then somebody must have made a mistake. Reality, of course, is not like that. Stuff happens. Randomness happens. So it's not that somebody made a mistake. But, you know, typically heads do roll. So the idea of um, what you're saying, and I do think, I, I agree with you about the trust-based system, gener generates, you know, typically generates better results. I try to do that uh, with my employees. I think sometimes I, I also live with bad consequences. And sometimes there are you know, bad decisions and so on. But okay, so I've empowered somebody and they've, you know, fine, it's learning, right? But I have to live with, with those consequences. If a manager is not comfortable living with those consequences, they will, because there will be that, there will pretty much 100% be errors, you know, over, over a long period of time. So you have to be uh, comfortable with that. If you're not comfortable with that, this is where you go overboard. And of course, you uh, change the behavior not only of the outliers, but you also change the behavior of uh, the vast majority of people and you inconvenience possibly vast majority of people because you're trying to correct for the outliers. The, I think where uh, people who make those decisions, um, and, and again, I've seen it over the last decade kind of in business, I think people go, well, at least we've done something, right? So there is a perception of, well, we've tried to cover this, right? So, and, and part of it is signaling to the superiors, maybe, that, oh, we've, we've tried that, right? So if something goes wrong, it's like it's really not our fault. Um, but I think, personally, I think one of the most important things that people in business maybe do not understand is that no matter, is, is exactly your point about status quo is also a choice. And also, no matter what you do, there will be unintended consequences and there will be randomness. And so one has to kind of get to terms with that. You cannot de-risk infinitely. But I think that's, I think that that risk management and the personal risk management, personal position status, uh, you know, impression with, with the governments, obviously the voters, right? Um, I think managing that is probably seen as or even more important than managing the actual risk of the actual situation. And maybe that d d explains why there are behaviors like you described it. They're not necessarily optimal from a rational point of view but again going back to that sort of they might be individually rationalizable if that makes sense then no, that's absolutely correct so you know any organization and I've I'm reasonably senior I've had senior roles in our organization you are always worried about the downside risk right so that's constantly what you're trying to avert right you, you know yep. small probability but I don't want this Large. to go wrong right Large impact, yes. 
But here's the problem with that. The problem is that there's, again, no, no easy answers, but the problem is that um, when you are doing so much to avert that very small downside risk, mm -hmm. you are often causing difficulties elsewhere. You are sacrificing. That's important to understand that, right? And the other issue that people don't often understand, and this is, again, a human problem, is that we are... Um, very focused on things that are right in front of our eyes, right? Yes. So we want to avoid those losses. But often in doing so, we are incurring much larger losses in the background, but it's not front and center, or maybe it's further down the road, right? So is there an easy answer to these questions? No, but what I'm saying is that uh, there should be some recognition of these trade-offs. and. The problem is whether it's business managers or CEOs or CFOs or prime ministers, there is often very little recognition of some of these trade-offs, that decisions have trade-offs, there are opportunity costs, don't focus excessively on something that's right in front of you, as opposed to you know, think about the future consequences. Many of these decisions are kind of long-term decisions. And we kind of tend to think that, you know, people in business are naturally good at this. Maybe, not necessarily. There's enormous amounts of, of work looking at, you know, confidence intervals for CFOs, right? Predict an event and yeah. give me a confidence bound and they are nowhere near that, right? Yeah. So businesses or um, organizations are not immune to making these systematic errors in judgment, right? And one of the things that I talk about a lot is businesses, particularly, or, you know, governments, you need to make a distinction. You need to clearly understand the difference between what's called wisdom of the crowd mm -hmm. and hoarding or information cascade. Yep. What's wisdom of the crowd? Wisdom of the crowd says, I'm going to ask a whole bunch of people what, say, the correct answer is. Should we launch this product? Should we not launch this product? Mm -hmm. Should we go into this market? Should we not go into this market, right? Yeah. So you ask a whole bunch of people and then you aggregate. Mm -hmm. What's the crucial point? The crucial point is those people must be providing you with an independent answer, independent estimate. And they also have to, at best, they also know something about the context. Even if they don't, actually, if they, as long as they're airing on both sides, high and low, you might be okay. But what is the problem? The problem is when those estimates are not unbiased or not independent, right? Mm -hmm. So for instance, if I say that, look, guys, I think we should go into this market. And then I ask people, chances are they're no longer independent because they know that this is what the boss wants. So now you're getting the same message over and over and over again from the same people, right? So here, the chances of a catastrophic mistake are much higher. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? Here's what you do. Here's what I, I tell people to do. I tell people to have what the Catholic Church calls the devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. Do you know what the devil's advocate yes. is? Yes. So the Catholic Church had this from about the 15th century or thereabouts, maybe even earlier. Mm -hmm. What was the devil's advocate's role? So anytime somebody came up for sainthood, the church appointed a person whose job was to argue why that person should not be canonized, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that was the person's job. So it wasn't as if the person was being a jerk or something. That was the person's job. Now, who did away with that or who minimized that? Pope John Paul II significantly minimized the scope of that office. What has happened? Since John Paul II, 
we have had more sainthoods in the Catholic Church than in the 400 years before that, including John Paul II, whose sainthood is now being questioned because of all the pre-sexual abuses. Mm -hmm. And people are saying, well, maybe he shouldn't have been sanctified, etc. So what's the problem? The problem is that there was no one arguing the opposite case. So in, in, in army, they call this red team, blue team, yes. right? That's what organizations need to do. So when you are faced with a major decision, you need to appoint someone who will argue the opposite. But very often what happens around the boardroom table, if you argue the opposite, all of a sudden you're not a team player, you are a jerk, you know, why do you have to be so difficult? But if you appoint someone to that role, mm -hmm. then that's that person's job. Yeah, that's right, and you sort of you remove the stigma because you then, remove the then, stigma, it's, then right? it's not personal, then it's you're just doing Which you is know. why armies often get it right and businesses often don't because most CEOs, and look, bear in mind, most CEOs are male, most CEOs are overconfident. They know, they think they know what's happening, but often we don't. There are, you have this blinkered vision that this is what's going to happen, but very often you need to ask somebody to say, well, what if this all goes wrong? So there, there, there are, uh, yeah, there, there is an exercise where, uh, which is similar, sort of, uh, you, you're wearing different hats. Correct. And so Correct. you allocate different Correct. hats. And also this concept about the, um, the, the overconfidence, uh, well, it's called groupthink, but there's, McKinsey has some time ago coined this, this idea of um, executive, uh, uh, exuberance or something like that and, and the idea is that either consciously or subconsciously you will you know if you know what your executive wants you will Correct. Correct. Uh, do, yeah. do that and and you know find evidence for why that is the really good thing and, and it could be uh, it could be subconsciously that's that's the thing I had a question about the individual versus uh, group decision-making but actually you preempted that by, by this discussion it's what else do we, apart from assigning different roles and actually having a robust debate, but trying to remove the, you know, the egos and uh, the personalities out of it? What else? Can, how else can we improve? It's a very generic question. I'm sorry no, no, about that. But how else can we improve the group decision making? And can we bring uh, again back to back to experiments? Can we bring something from um, either from the existing? Literature, or can we uh, can we actually experiment with with this? Like, how can we experiment with decisions around the around the board table, for example? So okay. So again, um, a very broad question. So one one thing that um, people need to understand is that groups tend to be much more self-interested than individuals. So, so long time ago, I wrote this article. Um, this is now seems kind of bizarre because so much has happened. But um, this was when Barack Obama was uh, president. And um, and John Beaner was a speaker of the House. The Democratic Republicans were fighting over the budget, and then there was a threat of government shutdown. So what Obama did was he kicked everyone out of the room, mm -hmm. and he sat down one on one with Beaner and came to an agreement. Mm -hmm. It's actually a lot easier to do that than when you're negotiating groups because groups get really entrenched in their position. That is very difficult. It's actually more difficult for groups to come to an agreement, right? So that's that's kind of by the by, beside the point. But um, but uh, the question you asked is uh, is what can we do, right? Mm -hmm. 
I think, by, by, by the way, I don't think it's beside. I think that's that's a really that's exactly on point. I think so. It's, in it's the really negotiating one on one, yeah. because in in groups, all of a sudden you don't want to lose face, don't want to lose you know ego, etc. Mm -hmm. The other thing is something that I'm working with with Thomas Pfeiffer, and it's a fairly intricate project. So um, it's actually asked the question. So to go back to this question, so suppose you have a large organization, and you want to find out, you know, should we launch this product? or should we go into this market or things like that, you can run experiments within the organization by having randomized groups that come up with various answers mm -hmm. and then you have to have some kind of aggregation rule which tells you which of those mm -hmm. would be best. And the way you can do that is by incentivizing that decision making, mm -hmm. right? So this is somewhat similar you know, we have these electronic markets for elections. Do you know about this? The Iowa electronic markets? No. Okay. So this is this is essentially like betting. Mm -hmm. But there are many, many markets now where you can bet on political outcomes. Who right. will be president? What vote share? You can do that in, within your organization. Mm -hmm. Right? Because you can ask, you know, which of these things should we do? Which product should we launch? Which course should we pursue? incentivize it so that people have its incentive compatible for people to say the right thing not and and it's anonymous right mm -hmm. so you can actually run these things in large organizations that's what we are working on right now and we are also working on problems where there is a fair amount of uncertainty so it's essentially you will get a signal about the state of the world so you're going to reach into a pocket get a bread ball or a blue mm -hmm. ball and then that tells you something and on, the, on that basis, you have to provide a judgment as to what yeah. course of action we should follow. So obviously, our thing is kind of, you know, it's stylized because it's like you're trading on an asset, right? Mm -hmm. But you can scale this up. So organizations can do this internally if they want. Most of them don't. I mean, most organizations can benefit immensely by tapping into their own workforce and running simple experiments with randomized people, small incentives of some kind, and they would end up with better decisions than having the you know, the CEO make all the call all the time. Yeah. I, I mean, of course, within that, then there's a, enough, enough scope for this trying to figure out, you know, is this feasible? You know, what is the cost? What is the benefit? Because not everybody has all the piece of information, but you could do this in organizations. Yeah. You would need uh, to deal with a lot of uh, egos about, you know, because like how can somebody who is way below have a better idea than you know, than true. me so, very true. so that's very true you need you need to have ceos who are open to listening to some of these things by saying that well um this is not what i wanted but i'm convinced mm -hmm. but again what i'm saying is that if this is really based on some reasonable amount of evidence may not mean all that much but ceos should be able to say or should be willing to say well, you know, this is what came out. This is not what I expected. Uh, and, and in general, I think that's the role of the leader is to impart, because otherwise, you know, you, you're an expert, you're not a leader, right? A leader should maximize the Correct. Uh, Correct. The, the team that, that he or she leads, right? It's uh, otherwise... And, and the, and the other issue that people, I think, seriously underestimate in most organizations is that at the end of the day, you have to have buy-in from your workers because mm -hmm. they will—they are the people who will have to deliver it. Yeah. You can order people as much as you want. Now, in a corporate setup, you have more leverage. You can fire people. In kind of non-profit sectors, you don't even have that leverage. Like in universities and things, you have very little leverage. Mm -hmm. right? 
So you have to get people to buy into your vision, right? So just to give an example, you know, five years ago, we did some major restructuring of the economics program in, at Auckland, right, when I was department head. And we, I, I had these very long meetings where everybody got to say what they wanted. I had students come in to talk about what they wanted. And some of the outcome was not what I had um, preferred, but you know, it was clear that that's what the majority of people wanted. And the outcome wasn't, it wasn't as if that, you know, you would be, you are sure that this is better than this. So I said, okay, most people seem to think this is the way to go. So let's, let's try that. And the other issue is that none of, none of these things are completely written in stone. I mean, you can try something for a few years. If it doesn't work, you can go back and revisit, yeah. right? Which um, is kind of a meta experiment in and of itself. Correct. Right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, you got it. We really need to. Yes, I have now. to. I have to what? meet somebody. At, yeah. Yes. And so this was it for this episode. Now in the bonus premium member episode, Ananish and I get more in depth into the wisdom of the crowd versus information cascades into devil's advocates, checklists, pilots, doctors, the New Zealand COVID response the practical ways of undertaking the experiments for your business, electronic prediction markets, and many more topics. And, being the actual professor, Ananish sets the homework. If you like this, subscribe to the premium feed on www.business-games.ai. The link is in the show notes. Next week, we'll cover experimentation in the context of large corporates. But we'll start in a slightly different place. We'll talk about crisis management. In slightly more than a decade, New Zealand unfortunately had a number of crises, starting with the Christchurch earthquakes and having more earthquakes, Christchurch terrorist shooting, a recent terrorist stabbing in Auckland, and a blowing up of a volcano. Large corporates in New Zealand had their employees in all of those spots. And we talked to one of the senior leaders from one of the largest banks in New Zealand about how to respond to a crisis, what we can learn about emotional safety, and how does any of this relate to experimentation. Tune in next time. For now, I thank you for listening. Rate and review us, and stay safe. <laughs>